to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, let's read at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she said, she asked him for, for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them, and said, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. One of the uh, uh, pitfalls that we often fall into when we are looking at these accounts in the Bible is uh, taking a posture of pride over the people uh, who were involved in these accounts. Uh, Matthew paints a very shocking picture, uh, both of the person of Jesus Christ in terms of what he was going to go through to secure our salvation, but also a shocking view, not only of the apostles, but of mankind in general. I say that because when we look in on this story, the two accounts are of Jesus saying what is going to happen to him, giving them a forecast of what the next... Uh, a little while is going to look like as he goes to Jerusalem, as he says himself, be delivered over to the Gentiles, be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day, giving graphic detail about the things that would befall him, but then to have that followed up by a, a, an exercise in amazing blindness and arrogance right on the top of it. And we look at that and we say, how can that be? And it's not just that. It's many, many uh, accounts through the Bible that are very similar where something would happen. Maybe the, in the book of Exodus where they would go through the Red Sea or God would do a miracle. And shortly after, a few verses later, they are doubting God. 
they're saying that God doesn't care for them, doesn't love them, has no interest in them. And again, we shake our heads and say, how can that be? How can people be so dense, so slow to, slow to uh, remember and, and, and quick to forget? And yet the Bible is a book about the human condition, not the Hebrew condition, not the Jewish condition, not the Gentile condition, the human condition. That's why it's so timeless. That's why the, sto the stories that were written so many years ago uh, can be applied to us even in this present day because they reflect the heart of man. Whether we are in a, uh, 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 an ancient, ancient culture or in a very technological, scientific culture like ourselves, the human heart is unchanged. And God knew that in giving us these accounts and giving us this material and giving us these books of the Bible and, and these uh, episodes in the life of Jesus. Because they not only reflect their lives, but our lives as well. Because we often, we come week by week and we hear those uh, episodes in the life of Jesus we are amazed and astounded that these things happened to Jesus, that he went through these things, and yet we find ourselves often gravitating in our lives, if we're, off, if we're honest with ourselves, to a place of, of self-protection, self-preservation, of looking after number one. And what are we doing? What We're falling into the same trap that the disciples fell into. And it doesn't matter what the passage of time was. We know that as Jesus taught us to use the Scriptures, if Scripture was written 2,000 or 1,500 years before, it still has the same applicability in the present day. That's why Jesus could quote Scripture that was written by Moses 1,500 years before him and say, it stands written. In other words, it has a continuing abiding authority even today as it w when it was written. So even we ourselves can uh, look into a passage like this and find many things that are shocking about ourselves. Because when Jesus speaks of the great cruelty and, and pain that is going to befall him, where do we find ourselves? What's our next step? How do we respond to that? The mother of James and John responded in a very shocking way. And I think probably James and John were behind it. And maybe using their mother for what they wanted to do. But nevertheless, it is a, a shocking reminder of the human condition. About how, how deaf we can be to what God is really calling us to. Well, let's unpack that as we go through this episode. Then the mother, uh, verse 20, of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. So, there is a passionate picture, isn't it? She comes with her sons, and she kneels before Jesus. She's taking a very humble uh, position before Jesus. And though it's, it's simply 
if you get right down to it, it's kind of veiled. The pride is really veiled in this humble kind of action. So she comes, and what is first and foremost on her mind? What's her top priority after Jesus has just forecast His mocking, His flogging, and many people didn't even make it past the flogging. It was so cruel. His crucifixion and His death. What is her and her son's first response? What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. We're very selective, aren't we, in terms of what we hear, what we take in. We are always good at emphasizing one thing over another. We may be great at emphasizing grace over our obedience and holiness. We are great at talking about justification by faith and maybe not a lot about sanctification. We're very selective in what we hear. Certainly, James and John and their mother had heard Jesus talking about the fact that they would as it says back in chapter 19 at verse 28, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, within, get, without getting into what all, all of that means, it certainly suggests to us that those who have followed Jesus, the twelve will, or the eleven eventually, will have a place of of privilege sitting with Jesus judging the twelve tribes of Israel but when some people hear of that their immediate response is well who's going to form the executive it just really spells the the depravity within man and so this is the opportunity that James and John are taking. And I, again, as I said, I think they put their mother up to it. Because a mother can tug on the heartstrings of someone, can't they? If you see uh, maybe a child is lost on, on the 6 o'clock news, and there is the mother, and the tears are coming down her face, please find my child. And if you can get a mother involved in it, uh, it, it becomes uh, much more impactful. And uh, maybe James and John are doing that. I mean, they're not wilting violets themselves. They're called the sons of thunder. And so they are very passionate in many ways. But I think they are manipulating their mother here to say, you go. If you come with us, he will listen to you. And so they, the, the, the mother comes, and not only comes to Jesus, she kneels before Jesus. So you can imagine, here's this woman really trying to tug on the heartstrings of Jesus, seeking this pride of place for her two sons. So not only have they already heard that they are going to be, uh, uh, that they're uh, leaving their homes and their families is not going to go unrewarded, that they're going to be having some kind of rule and place of judgment, um, but that's not good enough for James and John. Who's going to sit on the right and on the left? Who's going to form the executive? Who's going to be vice president? Who's going to be chancellor of the exchequer? Who's going to be, uh, these, fill these roles? 
And of course, it wouldn't have stopped there either. You know, who's going to sit on the right and the left? Well, the question is, once we've got that question settled, who's going to sit on the right? Because that was the real place of power. Because in the Bible, you talk about someone sitting at the right hand. As, as in, the, in, the, in the Psalms, it talked about the Father saying to the Son, sit at my right hand until I've made your enemies a footstool. So the, the place of real power was at the right hand of the ruler. And so even when James and John got the, the, the big question settled, who would sit at the right and the left, then the question would be, well, who's really going to get the right hand? And there would be another discussion follow after that. There would be a short time of celebration. Okay, we're, we're, the two of us are in. They're giving each other high fives. And they're really happy. But wait a minute. They're looking at one another. Who's going to get the right hand? Oh, and then they, one, they go running back to mom again. Mom, I was your favorite. And, you know, you always uh, thought I was, your, I was the good son growing up. And didn't I do this when I was a boy? And I always clipped my... It would all be more of uh, animosity as it went on. And so, there is this play for power even in the midst of Jesus saying to them that His lot would be one of humiliation, degradation, and death. And so it speaks of that arrogance. It speaks of that blindness. And again, you say, how can that be? And we sit in judgment over Peter, James, and John, and particularly James and John here. And yet, when we look at our lives and we are exposed to the Gospel on a regular basis and hearing that at the very heart of God's love for us is the cross of Christ, and then we look at our lives in comparison, how, how high a priority then do we give to the things of Jesus? Of the One who actually did this? We don't have just the forecast of it here. We don't just have the prophecy of it. We have the absolute fulfillment of it. We have the apostolic proclamation of it. We have the transforming power of it in world history down through the centuries all over the world. What is our response then to what He is saying? How do these things set with us this morning? Have our views changed? Or are we still as blind and cold and dead as the apostles are being here? Are we still as tone deaf as they are? When we think of the issues of heaven and hell, when we think of the, the, the character of God and His holiness, His purity, when we think of the glory of Jesus Christ and all that He went through to rescue us from our own sin, from the, law, the laws that we ourselves had broken, where does that leave us? Does it leave us hungry? for souls? Does it leave us broken for what we see going on around us? Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted, uh, a, 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 man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
That characterized his life because he saw the suffering that was going on around him. When his friend Lazarus died, he wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus because he felt deeply the effect of sin in the world. He was grieved to his heart at the unbelief and the selfishness of man. To his very core. And yet, what do we find with the disciples, those closest to Jesus? They're shooing away the children. They are saying, don't pay any attention to this leper. Though They're saying, you know, uh, who's going to get primacy of place? Am I going to be at your right hand, or is he going to be at your right hand? These were the questions that were occupying them. And if we are honest with ourselves, we have to think, well, how much in this week did the souls of men and women occupy my thoughts? Was I grieved over the things that go on in our world? How moved was I that God's name maybe was mocked and taken in vain? When, I see, when we see humanity, when we see our society, redefining the very good gifts that God has given us of humanity and sexuality and all the rest of it. How are we moved? What are then our, pre, our preoccupations when it comes right down to it? We are given a very bold window into what the preoccupation of James and John was and their mother, and that they would use their mother to bring those uh, things to an end. We're given a window. Even after Jesus had said these awesome things of what was going to happen to him. So I want us to, to see it in that light. And Matthew wants us to see it in that light. That's why he, he puts these two things together. And it's not the first time that Jesus foretold his death. Just back in verse chapter 17, we find uh, the very same thing. Um, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. But it doesn't last long with them. Soon their preoccupation. Soon they hear. They hear of privilege. They hear of those, uh, uh, those uh, places of privilege that are set before them. And it doesn't take long before the, the wheels start to turn. I wonder who's going to form the executive. Who's going to be in the inner cabinet. Who will be at Jesus' right hand and at His left hand. How easy it is for us to forget the things of the kingdom of God, the things that matter to God, the things of salvation, the things of God's love for the world, the, the heart that God has for the world. We certainly see that in Jesus. We certainly see His heart. We see His preoccupations. He kept saying it to them. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and He will be, he will be flogged and crucified. This is what was occupying the mind of Jesus. It was the cross. It was ourselves. It was you and I. It was sinners that needed, needed to be saved. It was the fact that He had to become nothing. That He, though being the Son of God, had to empty Himself of His outer glory and become a servant. 
and to rescue us. And their arrogance and their blindness and their tone deafness stands in sharp contrast to that. But as I said, it's not simply a picture of the disciples or any one ethnic group of people. But it's a picture of mankind. He goes on. Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking. You do not know what you're asking. Again, they had a very limited understanding of these things. They had no understanding of what was going to happen to Jesus. They had no understanding of the darkness that was going to befall him or the trouble that he was going to, to face on, on the cross. They had no understanding of eternal things. In fact, Jesus had to tell them the parable that we looked at last week of, of people who think that they're going to get first place, but really they're not. And so again, they're missing the point. They're not understanding. You don't know what you're asking. They are applying the same kind of humanistic thinking and logic that they had always done and that he had to address in that parable that we looked at last week. Where their minds ought to be occupied with great humility and brokenness and thankfulness up until this point. You see, it should have been filling their minds and hearts with, Lord, what, what would you have your servant to do? What shall I render unto the Lord for all his goodness to me? What, Lord? Uh, uh, Lord, I'm broken in the dust because of your love for me, all that you've done for me. Ought not that to be our response in the face of being rescued from the dominion of darkness? Ought that not to be our response, friends? But it is a different thing altogether. And so Jesus says, you will... Uh, are, 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 uh, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm uh, a, uh, to drink? In other words, there was a, a yes and no question, answer to this. They said again, very ar arrogantly, yes we are. Oh yeah. Just like a little kid. They said, yeah, that tractor, I can drive that. I, I, yeah, well, no problem. <laughs> Just blindness. We are able to drink the cup. What is he talking about when he's talking about the cup? He's talking about the cup of God's wrath. He talks that, uh, about that in Isaiah 51, for example. Um, and at verse 17, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, this is what Jesus is referring to when he's talking about the cup. It's the cup of God's wrath that he would drink on the cross. Jesus drinks that cup. And what's in that? It's the sin of the world. It's your crimes and my crimes that we've committed against God. And Jesus drinks that. And he drinks it lovingly. He drinks it to the dregs. So great is his love. 
And they say, yes, we are. Now listen to what Jesus goes on to say. You will drink my cup. Now what is Jesus saying there? He's not saying that they will experience what He experiences. That their suffering will have an atoning effect on the lives of people. That they will die for the sins of other people. That they will bear the wrath of God's judgment. They, Jesus is not saying that. But He is saying that because they identify with His cause, that they are identifying with the Savior, they will suffer because of it. And so He says, take up your cross and follow Me. They would suffer. In fact, James would be beheaded by Herod, and John would be exiled to the Isle of Patmos for the faith that he held and for the truth that he proclaimed. And so there was a sense of yes and no to this question. He says, but to sit, but it, 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 um, um, but to sit at the right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. Yes, you will suffer. Yes, you will uh, have to go through those things. But it is for those to whom it is prepared by my Father. Again, looking back to the, the last parable. The, 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 the workers are taken completely by surprise. It's up to the vineyard owner to finally dispose of what he owns at the end of the day, isn't it? That's, that's what the, the idea was. If I want to give a denarius to everyone, even if they showed up at the end of the day, it's my decision. It's my choice. It's not based on human presumption. Well, we think this is how it should play out. Well, Jesus is saying that's not for you to decide. It's for my Father who has prepared those places. Again, we are to take a place of humility and thankfulness for what God has already done and say, Lord, your ways are far beyond mine. And if I had applied my own logical thinking to salvation, Lord, I would mess everything up. So I'm willing just to leave that with you. Can you see the arrogance of these men? The, the hardness where they presume to come in the face of what is impending to say, we want the highest places. It's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. They should be humbled in the dust, thanking God, praising We don't care. And Lord, that's up to you. That's not for us. That's positions of eternal authority. Uh, how could I, as a mere human, begin to dictate to you, the King of Kings, how that should fall out? I, I dare not. But they did dare. They went there, as it were. And Jesus is rebuking them. He's saying, how, how could, this is not for you to decide. This is for my Father to decide who has prepared these things. And He was really taking them to task for their lack of humility. To even ask or suggest such a thing. But Jesus says the reverse. He says, but Jesus called them and said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. 
In other words, these people did not know of the, the great democratic enterprises that we have enjoyed as Western societies uh, as where, where you can elect people to office and that people can be thrown out of office and that it's not certain people that should hold all the power but in a democracy the power belongs theoretically to the people. And the world that these people knew was the world of the Pharaoh, the world of Nebuchadnezzar, the world of Caesar, the world of, of all these great dictators and emperors who wielded absolute power. And they didn't just put it in the closet and put it on a shelf. They enjoyed wielding that power and making sure everyone knew who was boss. They enjoyed it crushing their enemies, making an open display of them, crucifying them along the highway so that they knew who was in control. Jesus says, that's the world that you live in. But that's not the way you should live. And we cannot, we cannot forget how radical what Jesus is saying here was that true greatness is to become a servant. Is to, become, is to empty yourself and to serve your fellow man. That this itself is at the heart of God. Just as I said at the beginning, justice and holiness and all these things are at the very heart of God. So is this question of servitude, of service. And that's why Jesus goes on. He says, um, Verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Friends, that's incredible. Who is the Son of Man? Why does Jesus call Himself that? It's taken from Daniel chapter 7. Hundreds of years before Jesus came. And it was the way Jesus identified Himself. And in that prophecy in Daniel 7, it says the Son of Man came in the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days, before His Father, and was given thrones and dominions and kingdoms. A kingdom that would never end. And Jesus is saying, I am that Son of Man, but I have come, not first and foremost, to crush or to rule, but to serve. I your Lord. And that's why in the night before He died, He gets up from, the, from supper and He takes off His outer garment and He gets down on the floor and He begins to wash the disciples' feet with His hands with a basin and a towel. How does John preface it? He prefaces it by saying, Jesus, knowing that He had come from God and was going back to God and that the Father had given all things into His hands, He arose from supper and he girded himself and he got down and he washed his disciples' feet. At his very heart, there was a servant. These things are treasured by Jesus. He, he longs to see that in his own people. And he, he longs to see that so much that he... he puts this mirror up, which is called His Word, and He says, see the way what they did when they were 
confronted with, with their own self. What did they do? What did they say? How did they respond? And Jesus is wanting us to ask the same questions. What is most important to Jesus? He became a servant. That's why when we leave this life and we go to stand before Jesus, what are the words the Bible tells us that will be formed on His lips when we stand before Him? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what means the most to Jesus. And we are to capture that sense, that heart that Jesus had, not for world dominion, not to have notoriety, but to embrace obscurity if we have to. In fact, I read a book a few years ago and it was called Embracing Obscurity. And the guy wanted to embrace so, obscurity so much he didn't even put his name on the book. It's the first book I ever read that had no author because he didn't want to be known. He really wanted to embrace obscurity. I think it's downstairs. You should embrace it. Get a, get a copy after, after church. This is what Jesus is calling us to. He emptied Himself. He made Himself nothing. That's what Philippians says. He took upon Himself the form of a servant and being found in the form of a servant, He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so, we have a challenge put before us. The Son of Man who came not to serve, but to, to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That means that his his blood was the payment price for your sin and my sin. A ransom means in today's language that you're a hostage. Oftentimes, a ransom is paid to a ho for a hostage, right? A government may pay so many millions of dollars to get you out. Well, we are in host we're hostages to sin and to unbelief. We thumb our nose at God. We think we know what the better way is. We evaluate our lives and say, I think God will be pleased with my life when I die. And there's no question I will go to heaven. You see, we think in man's terms. But the Bible says that Jesus had to pay a ransom price for us because we were slaves to sin. And that is the testimony, not of the worst people in the Bible, but some of the most religious men of the Bible. The Apostle Paul, Peter, David, Moses, the list goes on. They all testify, I am nothing. I am what I am by the grace of God. Can you say that today? That's your only hope. That is the only way in which you will swing out into eternity and, and, and be able to face God is by the blood of Jesus and that ransom price that was paid for your sin. And here today, the opportunity is still alive and well because Jesus has come to serve even here, to offer, to hold out to the One who may for all these years have said no, no, no. That's for the bad. That's for the evil. That's for the sinful. That's for the disrespected in society. No. No, he's, he's holding it out to you and to me. Every day we hear the Gospel as a servant might come. 
And in light of that, friends, those of you who do believe and trust in Christ, these are opportunities for us to radically reevaluate what are the priorities in my life. When, when I stand before God, will, that, will those words be true of me? Well done, good and faithful servant. Not mover and shaker. Not influencer. Not high and mighty. Well done, good and faithful servant. And how do we become that then? We do it by focusing in on the very example Jesus gives us because we focus in on what He did. And the more you know of the Gospel, the more of a servant attitude you will have. You will want to become like Him. Your cry will be, Lord, help me to serve. Your, your crown and your glory will be able to be, be that of the Apostle Paul as he began all his letters. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. And may it be said for us today, let us pray. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, for how easy it is 